Welcome to Nostalgia Ultras, the football podcast still living off past glories. I'm your host, Steve McGovern. I'm joined by, on my left, Colin Buhig. Hello. And on my right, Maris Brosnan returns. How's the fun, lads? How are you guys? You doing well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How are you? So? You're grand? <laughs> sure, you look. Strictly my tea that you made me. Yeah. And Steve makes a great cup of tea. For it's a measure plus. Yeah. I'm gonna. To I'm, I'm gonna tell you something now, which may or may not change your trust in me. Uh-huh. That's soy milk. I knew that, I knew there was something different about this team. All this time, I didn't want to ask. I didn't want to know how the sausage was made. Because <laughs> it tastes now you good. Know. Like, yeah. Is there anything else in it? Do you want to put sugar in this many chance? There's cocaine in it. <laughs> no, I don't put sugar in it. Um, it's yeah, um, there's kind of a sweet taste. Of yeah, it. sweetened soya, not unsweetened. Yeah, I knew there was something. Yeah. I'm a fan thanks no bother Uh, so today we're talking about I think one of the weirdest and most interesting seasons in Premier League history which was the year that Taksin Sinawatra took over Manchester City which then paved the way for uh, Sheikh Mansour to take over and thus change football forever I really don't know where to begin with this, so we'll probably just try and go in chronological order and then just go from there. But um, essentially, uh, Taxon Sinawatra was the Thai Prime Minister who bought Man City in 2007 for £80 million. He appointed Sven Goran Eriksson. And then over the course of the campaign, they had derby wins, really mad January signings. Uh, Stephen Ireland had a hair transplant. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was also the year that he made up two debts. Uh, at the end of it, Ericsson was sacked during a debaucherous postseason Asia tour, and somehow City became the new superpower <laughs> of English football. So, before we kind of get into it, do either of you have any specific memories of that season? Do you remember like watching City that year and kind of what it was like? Yeah, I'm not in my head vigorously here because, as a United fan, uh, my prime memory of that season is the two Manchester Derby defeats by City and. Even though the old chapter was really famous because it was the anniversary of the Munich uh, air disaster and Benjani scored. Do you remember that? I think it was first, one of his only goals for the club. But I actually remember the first win better uh, at City Stadium when Giovanni got the winner. Oh, that, yeah. that was in September. I remember watching that at home. I think it was like a lunchtime kickoff on a Saturday. Like that was uh, the second most successful season United ever had under Fergie. It would end up being after 99 because we won the Champions League at the end of that season and the Premier League. So uh, to lose that game was to lose both those games was quite significant that season, and that's what I remember from it. Especially given the weight that um, that was the year after the end of the season before Michael Ball had stamped on Ronaldo. And there was mm. a massive kind of fallout post that that as what was already a pretty heated rivalry became even more so kind of that year. Like I I've kind of got funny memories of that year because City I've got a kind of a unique relationship with City. They're the first Premier League team I ever saw live. I saw them play. In 2003 against United, a one-all draw. So I got to see the mishmash city, which had, like that that day, Anelka and Robbie Fowler were up front, and like they had <laughs> Sylvain Distan and Richard Doan at the back. They had, like Jensen was playing midfield, Shrewsbury Phillips I think was out wide on the left. Like it was a real kind of a mishmash team that, all of a sudden, then in like my unique memory of 2007 is watching Tassan, or as he was called, Frank by City fans. Yeah. Uh, singing Blue Moon the day he arrived with uh, a song sheet in tow and like one of the worst renditions of a song yeah. I think ever S- singing is a generous yeah, that's a very- <laughs> summation of what he did whatever it was that he did yeah. but it was also I mean it was unprecedented in that he was the first Asian owner to buy a club in the which Premier is mad League. absolutely because like, yeah. this is only 11 years ago and he's the first Asian owner we've now got several 
across. He's not even the only tie owner of a Premier League club. And like, but this was only and a he, decade ago. I mean, he, and he, like, he teed up. He was famously an ally of uh, Shahur, who ended up going on to buy Leicester City, who was a kind of a close business consultant. The man who ultimately succeeded him as Prime Minister went on to buy Birmingham City, which went a lot worse <laughs> in 2010. But he kind of he, he opened the door to a world that I think football was never the same again afterwards. Yeah. So what what were City like pre money? Even like let's say pre um, Eddie Had Stadium because they were at Main Road up until what was it two thousand three? Yeah. How would you describe them? In my head, I kind of have this image of just like a fairly standard English type club. Yeah, they were lovable, I suppose. I mean, they weren't a threat again from a United perspective but overall they were a bit of a yo-yo Premier League club they kind of always had a talented player in their ranks no matter how bad they were Georgie Kinclatsy would be the, being the most famous in the 90s and then of course Niall Quinn is kind of a city legend still uh, but they were never a threat uh, but they were always kind of entertaining and you kind of welcomed them back every time they kind of mm. came back up and now of course like they've completely surpassed United and I suppose it actually kind of did start in this season that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I think Man City were kind of a typical English club, nearly. Yeah, I think, you know, like, just like no kind of airs and graces. Mm. They had like a typical old school kind of stadium, kind of homely. But now you look at the, that makes the transformation all the more interesting. And I think it starts with this season, with uh, Shinawatra taking over. At the time, he like I said, he, he paid 80 million for it, which is weird now. I don't know if there's a Premier League club that would go for a, a only eighty million. Like yeah, it just he, wouldn't happen. But it, basically, to give some background on on who he was, he was a former police officer, turned billionaire, who made his money essentially in computers and mobile technology. He then became a politician in the nineties, that led to becoming PM in two thousand one. Before he was eventually ousted uh, by a military coup in 2006 uh, some other interesting tidbits he's a winner of the International Forgiveness Award 2004 obviously prestigious award for being forgiven I've no idea I did, to be honest I didn't look into it because it just seems ridiculous but he also has a brand of economics named after him called Taxonomics so there you go that's who he is he's a fairly phenomenal relationship with football as well like he you know it's kind of in the era post travel summer trips to America and then when they started to target Asian markets under David Gill went and presented him with a, a birthday present of a United jersey with 52 in the back and that that was kind of he saw that United team play in pre-season in front of what 78 thousand and fell in love with the idea of buying a, a football club so he famously tried to buy a 30% share in Liverpool in 2003 but it was rejected on the grounds that uh, the scheme that he had to raise money for that was through the Public like library. A, yeah, so it, was it was a, a lottery. A lottery, yeah. yeah. So it was, a, it was a literal capitalism in its worst form. Like you, you rob from the rich to rob from the poor to give to the rich yeah, or yeah. to contribute to the rich and go from there. So and yet still he was allowed by a club five years later, given a fairly questionable human rights record. Yeah. Well, I suppose that kind of shows the kind of position that City were in, where they were a stable club financially, you know, okay, but never breaking the bank. You know, probably spending only a couple of million per year in transfers. But then the season before that. It's it's mad. They didn't score a goal at home in the league after January first. Yeah. So from there to like you can imagine just scoreless games 
at home, uh, it must have been absolutely fucking depressing. Which climax and like pure Stuart Pearce, who did a good job there. Like the club, I know you like, kind of touched on the idea that maybe they were slightly typical, but in a lot of ways, like did a very good academy there, and that kind of got stifled the year Sven arrived. Like you got yeah. guys like Trippier and Sturridge who it didn't well, work we, out for. We t- we've talked before about um, that Man City where they had guys like Willow Flood, Stephen Ireland. Uh, Joe Hart that was the Michael guys. Johnson get brought yeah. through the year under Sven you, they had loads of lads coming through before like you had and then obviously from an Irish perspective we had like, kind of Richard Dunn who was kind of a cult hero there like the club itself was kind of a very kind of stable well run club but that was the basic premise was that they were never going anywhere that uh, like as Colm said they were yo-yoing and then all of a sudden this year arrived and they were never the same again the reasons for him buying the club are interesting because obviously at that point this is 2007 a year previously He's been ousted from public office by the military. So he's essentially looking for a good publicity. I only found out as well, I had either completely forgotten or never knew that he tried to buy Fulham and failed. But he buys it for 81 million. Essentially, it's a, basically a PR stunt. Uh, it, it, in essence, yeah. I mean, like the can you imagine, uh, you know, a uh, rich tire owner rocking into Manchester alongside Ricky Hatton and getting up with a song sheet to sing Blue Moon, not being a PR stunt? Like, what, what other reason is there to subject people to that? Like, so, like, and that kind of carried out throughout the year. Like this idea that I know we're going to talk about that Daily Mail article later here, but that he brought Michael to Thailand to attend a funeral and he ended up singing karaoke for the royal family. Like the you've you've got the basic premise of three. Thailand players, one of whom who was didn't even get a game during the Asian Cups on the bench prior to being signed by City, end up arriving with a massive publicity stunt effectively to try and play better in Thailand. None of three of them obviously played. They actually went out on loan and didn't play a league game for any of the clubs they went out on loan at. Like the the whole year in many ways kind of followed that trend. Yeah, I mean like there's so many t- like it so much happens in just uh, the one year. Like I said, Ian Ladyman of uh, the Daily Mail wrote pretty much the definitive piece on this because there's so much background information and he does a really great job of getting all these little bits of, like, I suppose, trivia, just hundreds of bits of trivia, which just make up this one amazing story. He says, basically, when he first came into City in June 2007... They had a staff meeting and he points to a photograph of a dog on a chart and said, if a dog can bark, good. If it can't bark, then shoot it. And I think that puts into like that just shows the kind of person he was like, he's like, here's a picture of like he brings out a picture of a dog. Here's how I'm going to illustrate my point. Yeah, he uh, he had some amazing moments. Actually, he like a best bits uh, Big Brother style. Because <laughs> he, uh, they had a um, fairly horrible purple kit that season as their away or maybe yeah. third choice, but and he banned it. But it wasn't for a fashion. It wasn't in a fashion statement. It was because purple is unlucky in Thailand, so he he banned the team from wearing it. I don't know how he got by Premier League rules for that. And then he he would he entered the dressing room kind of the about three quarters of the way through the season when they weren't doing too well. Having started the season brilliantly, they were third going into December. Uh, but they tailored off second half of the season he went in about three quarters of the way through and he said um, you all need to treat this game like it's the World Cup final and then left and then Sven just shook his head and he goes okay anyway as I was saying like, <laughs> like was... Father Ted about uh, Graham Norton in the caves and Father Ted went Graham Norton sings Bohemian Rhapsody and then Father Ted said as I was saying because <laughs> <laughs> there was there was actually uh, he actually turns to the kit man yeah. who used to do Les impressions Chapman, of it and he says yeah. I think you're 
taxing knows the, more. Uh, I think your version of taxing knows more about football than he does. Yeah, yeah. He's just so perfect. What about the squad though? Yeah, it was that good. they had because it was pretty interesting. When you look back, I was like, oh, I actually I quite like a lot of these players. The re- it was they a really were... like. Well, this is going back to your first question to, to both of us about what City were like before that, and they were they always had kind of likable players and exciting players. I got the, kind of like a general. Starting eleven here, well, yeah. as you said, Joe Hart in net, obviously, veteran Chorluka, yeah, who is a the chain smoker, yeah, who um, God caught speeding at the same <laughs> camera five times. People will probably remember that. That's one of those stories that kind of sticks in the back of your mind. What was his reason? <laughs> he thought it was the paparazzi. <laughs> Oh god Yeah which is exactly Like he fits into this group So well Yeah And Michael Richards And Richard Dunn At centre back Michael Ball As you mentioned Morris At left back Stephen Ireland Gelson Fernandez Dietmar Hammon Martin Petrov Quite yeah. a good player And then Kind of up front You got Alano And um, another one of our favourites Darius Vassell Oh Vassell Amazing His uh, and, and obviously Javier Garrido Had uh, 29 starts as well yeah, the but they, they brought in uh, Giovanni as well, who scored the winner in the first Manchester derby. Valery Bajanov, for anyone who's a football manager fan. Got a horrible injury. Brilliant that year, player. Yeah, yeah, he's really was always brilliant in that game. And they got Rolando Bianchi, the Italian striker. If Connor was here now, he'd be all about him. But Sven <laughs> said of all the eight players they signed, they signed eight in total. He said Bianchi was the only guy who wasn't technically up to it. They thought he was, and he turned out not to be. But this... Um, Speaking of the playing staff, I mean, they also had a likable manager in Sven. I mean, I suppose at the time he was still very much tainted from England. He had left a year earlier. This is his first job since England as well. And he wasn't first choice. Claudio Ranieri was allegedly yeah. the first choice of Shinaratra. So I suppose he was kind of grateful for it, but he took the job on the premise that they'd have money to spend. And they did. And he since said... For a while. <laughs> yeah. And he since said that... Uh, in hindsight, he, he joined City a year too early. And the players and fans didn't want him to leave. So much so that the last game of the season, the, they famously got hammered by Middlesbrough 8-1, that Richard Dunn, the club captain, approached Sven before the game and said that they didn't want to play because they knew he was going to get sacked. That's how much they loved him. And Sven said, no, we have to play the game. Dunn ended up getting sent off within 15 minutes for a straight red. And Burrow went down and scored eight of the nine goals that game. Uh, so the, the players loved him. And then Sven, as you mentioned this after the intro, he had to take them on the pre-season tour for the following season that he was not going to be in charge of. <laughs> and one of the most famous quotes in football, Diddy Haman and Sven's interaction the morning after the night before by the pool. Do you know the one? I do. It's in his autobiography, isn't it? Yeah. W- one morning when I was on a sun lounger by the pool, he walks towards me with a bottle of champagne and two glasses on it. It was still only 10 in the morning. I looked up and I said, Boss, what are we celebrating? Expecting him to make the triumphant announcement he was staying. He turned to me and smiled that gentle smile of his and took the air of a Buddhist philosopher as he said, Life, Kaiser. We are celebrating life. With a glass of champagne in hand, he stood and looked out towards the horizon, then spoke in that higgledy-piggledy Swedish accent. You know, Kaiser, I like this place. I think I'll manage for another five years and come back here and live with two women. Yes, <laughs> I think I will need two women. <laughs> He was a man, isn't he? Oh, I love him. And also to add to that, a man was dying hungover from the night before. <laughs> so he he wasn't lounging by the, the pool in his togs. He was like in his clothes from the night before having fallen asleep. <laughs> and Sven saw him and came out to him but with the glasses. It's interesting you bring up the story between those two because I think um, his relationship with Haman also shows kind of like um, the, the nicer and softer side of Sven, which is he rang him every morning to make sure that he was all right, that he was, you know, getting up and yeah. getting ready for training because obviously at that stage, Haman was kind of 
starting his gambling addiction. Oh yeah, yeah. So he was going through a dark period at the time, and Sven yeah. like made sure like he rang him every single morning just to make sure he was okay. Well, I was going to balance it with something that's actually uh, way less important than that, but that he, you know, everyone has the perception of Sven, or not everyone, but a lot of people are certainly decide the world that he's a bit of a chancer. But he actually was a very, very hardworking coach, and Old he school. used to, yeah, and he used to go to the under 18s and watch them regularly. The city players. He was fascinated by who was coming through the academy because at the time they had Kieran Trippier, Sturridge, and that yeah, Sturridge and Ben Mina, who's at Burnley. So he was really, really into the idea of developing the younger players and matching them with some interesting signings from abroad. And he was very enthusiastic about the future, as were the players, as were the fans. And also, you hear about him. He had what was it, five years in England at the end. Don't think I've ever really heard a bad word said about him by the English players. I think there might be better tacticians out there. But as a man-manager, he was excellent for the simple fact that he had this kind of levity about him. But at the same time, he was still able to command this authority, which is very difficult to do, like to have that balance as a manager. So yeah. the, you, 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 like researching this topic, you kind of understand, like this guy was kind of one-off, wasn't he, Sven? Oh, he's, even yeah. now, he's like, maybe it's like tangent. He's had an unbelievable career. Like he's had this... He's won at least 20 yeah. trophies across yeah. three different countries. He, like, he had a great, you mentioned Lazio, he had a great run in Benfica as well. He's, uh, he's at least, I, don't, I, he's in, I think he's in China now, he's at least three countries managed now. He's a rack or a rack. He's on, like, he's. Oh, he took, he didn't, he, anyway, go ahead, just keep talking. I mean, like, just in general, like, the, it's funny, the, you know, the alternative was Ranieri, who looks like he's bound for Bordeaux now, but like, the, yeah. you have two kind of really kind of experienced, breathfully managers who, like, they kind of, I, would always be of the opinion that they weren't commanded the respect they might have deserved because of their reputation in England. Like we, there's such a lamp, limited version of that game. Yeah, that very true. Even outside that, that maybe like he's won trophies in three different countries. Like the only way that he didn't have phenomenal success was at City when he only got a year. And even he, like he, he took it. It was probably it was widely known at the time that Ranieri was approached first, and he said, you know, I don't care if I was the sixth or seventh choice. That he knew he trusted himself to do a job when he was there anyway. Spended, yeah, yeah. He did. He, he recently did an interview speaking, but that stint with. Um, I actually don't know who the original interview was with, I'm sorry, I think it was, I read it on Planet Football, but just talking about the idea that he was totally at home with his own ability, that he didn't care what, when yeah. he was approached or what he's there, and that kind of transferred into his reign. Like, they had, there's some unbelievable highs that year. You mentioned the, that, like, that derby team, that was the year, he, he Giovanni dropped into the hole there and gave Hargreaves the runaround. It was actually eventually, mm. United tried to combat it by tracking Carrick in there as well. Like, they, Nanny was... Talking, taking out again, they end up bringing on Chris Eagles. Like he kind of, he, he like I know tactically maybe he, he let down, but that game certainly got one over on Sir Alex, and it kind of carried on over from there. Like I, I do, I do think he might not command the respect he deserves because of that year is a bit like we talk about it now, and it's an unbelievable narrative, and it's a bit almost a laughing stock. But Sven was a bit of a like a kind of in the eye of that needle. He was some some sort of calm calming influence. Yeah. Like, you've even Richard Dunn has spoken very highly of him since. Mm. I think he the he left England as a bit of a cloud. I think with the two thousand and six World Cup was kind of the height of wag culture, and he, you know, it was celebrity. He was allegedly obsessed with Beckham's fame, but that's the report. I can't imagine him actually being like that. But you're right. Like he before England, like he was his record was incredible, and he he did well with England. Like I think he in his three tournaments, three quarterfinals, and two penalty shootout defeats. Well, it was only the Brazil two thousand and two really that was they should have really won that game. And funnily enough, there was a doc. I don't know if you saw the documentary over the summer about England managers, and they go through them one by one. It was on BBC during the World Cup, and Rio Ferdinand and Alan Shearer, I think, talk about Sven's era. And Shearer wasn't playing at the time, but he was obviously talking about it. And he said that Sven, uh, great man, but kind of let down tactically with him. And that kind of they just kind of put a line under it straight away. Yeah. 
it's funny because he can he deserves more than that. Like, there's there's more to him than being a, a charismatic guy, which he was and still is. But there's always doubt about him. Yeah, and they're probably trying I, to be. I feel like after England, what he needed was he just needed a a good steady club where he could do well. He could do his thing and do well. And then he ends up walking into Man City, which is just the greatest, like, not quite, a, a shit show might not be the word for it. Bigger than a shit show. When it started, they won nine of their first 14 games. And then they, they lost two. And then they won, like, seven of the next ten. So they were flying at the start of the season. But, yeah, he his it was like, reading about that season in general was hilarious. And he lived in a hotel, I think, because he was so paranoid about the red tops, writing about his private life. Which which was about £2,400 a night. Yeah, and he used to pay for everything in cash. So he could bring whoever he wanted to up to the hotel room. I.e. he was loving life like and he always has done. But he, he definitely like you said, he was loved by the players, but he also had a kind of an old school yeah. charm about him. So he got that balance perfectly well because the players loved him, by all accounts. Really and did. played for him because they finished eighth that season and they got some great results. Like they, they went the first three games unbeaten. They won the first three games, including the one 0 over United. So I just, I just I feel like the conventional wisdom is managers like this just don't work because they don't have the the discipline. So how did he how did he end up getting so much out of this group? Ultimately, it's about creating an atmosphere. Like and it's it's gotten a lot of managers very far. Like the I suppose the reference that we would all be familiar with is Martin O'Neill. Like Martin O'Neill has made a career out of creating really product productive atmospheres and kind of relying very heavily on Robinson, who's actually not with him. It's very interesting to see right now when he's first time he doesn't have a right man handle who was so tactically astute as Ramsden reportedly was he's brought has Roy Keane now as assistant that uh, didn't seem to be going as well as maybe it had done previously and like the atmosphere seems to be <laughs> quite totally the opposite different. yeah but it was like if only like and but only is that the only one who's made careers out of kind of doing that like of, out mm-hmm. of being you know on the player's side and, and also, like, you also have to kind of appreciate the fact that a lot of those players while m- maybe McCurriel were extremely talented players like Alano there's, there's no question about his ability especially that year you mentioned Giovanni that goal he scored against United curling around the box like like a lot of those for all his uh, flaws like Daryl Fassell scored a lot <laughs> like these are ultimately I think sometimes there's something to be said we're just creating a right atmosphere that a lot of managers probably lack like you see managers who are I'm sure like I'm sure Villaboas was very tactically astute but his man management skills were almost non-existent that he the one leader who was at Chelsea at the time to give a comparison, like Chelsea with the influx of Abramovich's money was John Terry and he pissed Terry off by playing a high line and not playing him. And then, like, if you don't have the players on side, you have nothing. So, like, I suppose what's fended very, very well, if we were going to talk about what came after, was that you lay a foundation or a ground block that you've got a lot of core content players. Players who persisted long after Sven went, you know, like, the you've got this idea of, like, Dunn, even though Richard Dunn, Richard Dunn was club captain the a year after... The club was sold. One of the famous lines was, you know, Richard Dunn doesn't exactly roll off the club in Thailand. And yet he still remained club captain a year later because yeah. of the regard he was held in. Like the Mika Richards still prolonged that club. He, who again, Sven introduced into the club, this idea, him and Michael Johnson, both who Sven incorporated into that team. Like he, all that integration was down to him. He was a player's manager. Yeah. You know, he had a love of a flair player. And I think that kind of always goes down well. Like he, he loved Stephen Ireland. And then the other side of him was the light side of him that players could uh, feel, feel that they could interact with. Like Sven allegedly found the granny story hilarious yeah. when Stephen Ireland lied about the, his granny dying. He thought it was brilliant. Sven, he was but like... Ian Leiderman writes that. Yeah. Uh, a source told him he was crying with laughter. Crying with laughter is mental. <laughs> and then Richard Dunn was on about uh, 
the first preseason when he'd just taken over and Sven says you can go out for a few beers while they're away in Asia come Big, back for midnight yeah. Richard Dunscoil is saying uh, in Alberto Camas was it forgot? Delayed we were delayed coming back <laughs> in Alberto Camas and then they came back to see Sven's assistant Tor Grip playing the accordion in reception and Richard Dunn says I think we're going to be okay this season <laughs> these guys are going to be alright for us <laughs> yeah that's it yeah, yeah. Just amazing, like, and it did show because, like I said, the especially the first half of the campaign, exactly. really good. Like you said, what was it? Third at Christmas. Third going in. Third going into December, and at the Christmas party, there was talk of them winning the league, and Sven had to calm Tax and Shinnerachter down. Yeah, saying we're not going to win the league. But at the same time, he was excited because he was saying, "Oh, Taxon says I've got yeah. fifty million to spend." And then didn't didn't yeah. quite. It's a see. It was a season of two halves because the first half was pretty much euphoric. Especially because the previous year, Mr. Pierce was awful. Then, you know, they only scored from the 1st of January to the end of the season. Scored one, was it no goals at home under Stuart Pierce? Yeah. Eight, eight league games, no home goals. And the last half of Sven's time, they only won five games the second half season. So there was something to do with stamina or lack thereof. Whether that was on or off the pitch or a combination of both. Well, I think the, I think probably what happened was that, you know, everyone knew kind of well, this is a, uh, you know, Sven is coming towards the end and things aren't all right. Uh, what people didn't know was that his, his money was frozen because of what was happening How much back home in Thailand. 800 million or something fro- frozen assets. Yeah, 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 something crazy. Yeah, essentially he had to ask the former chairman. John, John Wardle, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for a loan. Who, who yeah, so at several points he had to give him loans of like 2 million quid just to pay the players. And obviously I think that fed into it by the end of the season you know, things weren't as as stable as before and no. eventually it kind of all comes to a head, like you said, with that 8-1 at the end of the season. Where, where the players didn't want to play and Stephen Arnold said it was the lowest moment of his career, which is saying something for a guy who's, in fairness, had a few, yeah. like... And well, there's, there's even there's a quote from here, one employee says, I served 17 managers at that club and he was my favourite, yeah. a special man. Like, nobody seems to have a bad word to say about him and yet he ends up out on his arse. He's consigned to history completely, like uh, because City have been so monumentally successful in the last decade that that season almost seems irrelevant now. But it was really important for them because it built a sense of status that they belonged in the elite. Because Fen has that bravado about him without even trying to. He has that status yeah. himself. I know he followed that on with managing Leicester in the Championship, and it didn't go well at all. But he certainly was able to do it with City that season was crucial for them it would have been really interesting to see if Sven was the first manager with the Abbey Dhabi money rather than Mark Hughes well, they're, totally, they're two, two totally different managers Completely. aren't they they're pretty much on the opposite Personalities scales aren't they anyway. yeah I mean there was the like Mark Hughes being in awe of the idea that they signed Rubinho and in fairness the whole Man City brigade in general were but I feel like Sven would have been like yeah okay I, Robbie, that's great we have Robinho now and I, yeah and, and like we we spoke on a couple of episodes back on the uh, shocking transfers yeah uh, podcast yeah, yeah maybe Sven I mean De- Sven definitely would have treated Robinho differently he might have actually been able to be you know I don't know like a mate with him or at least but you yeah, know be able to speak was, with him on, on the same level whereas I don't know if you he, Hughes probably never been since his you know it, at least in his managerial career never been around a player with that kind of aura well Hughes was a Great player himself, but would probably find it quite hard to translate uh, what he knows about the game verbally to a player like that. Whereas Sven was a very average right-back, I think. Maybe played semi-professional football, but had a a profound admiration for flair players. 
So Senna would have been ideal for Robinho, who threatened to retire if Real Madrid didn't let him go under Bernd Schuster. So Robinho would have loved that idea. Now, he Robinho stayed for 15 months with the same length of time as Taxon Genoatra. And, you know, he had a decent start and then fell away. Like Sven, same thing. They would have been ideal for each other, I'd say. And what's so odd is that Taxon Genoatra made Sven take the team away on pre-season and sacked them on the last day of pre-season but he, he hadn't even it, I think it was March he knew he about stopped, it he, leaked, yeah. he stopped talking to Spain and there was yeah. the defeat to, the famous Fulham win wasn't it the yeah. 3-2 well basically yeah. f- f- I think Man City were winning 2-0 yeah, half-time, at half-time yeah. uh, at half-time and essentially Fulham were relegated there and then with that result yeah. they were they were going down and then somehow in the second half, Fulham come back and score Diamancy three Camara, goals. Yeah, Diamancy Kamara, what a man! Mm. But yeah, God, that's that, that is one of the uh, most kind of famous wins in, in, mo- Premier, in modern. Premier, yeah, yeah it, I was going to say just in modern Fulham kind of uh, oh, history, it's but it's it is one of those big things because that that is still referred to as the great escape I think we've probably had a few I think probably the Leicester one probably surpasses that now well the West Brom is the originally famous great escape yeah because they were bottom at Christmas and came back but yeah it's still referred to as great just because we were we were mathematically relegated if the game had finished at that at like 3.45 or whatever it was and that was early in the season that was like mid-March or something wasn't it yeah Yeah. it was crazy early we were were shocking up to that point and then uh, but anyway the the point (laughs) sorry I got got full of digression and yeah, always yeah. won. Yeah, but it all fell apart. He hadn't been the Shinawatra had not spoken to Savan uh, for months, and it all kind of came to a head. Then he was sacked in in June. Like I said, that's like almost a month after the season ends. Yeah. It's basically because his wife is <laughs> prime minister, but she's ousted. So then his accounts are properly they're frozen. Yeah. And then in November two thousand eight, he's banned from entering Britain, and. That's what kind of, well, that's after everything else has happened. But kind of, it's it's mad how quickly it all yeah. just flipped. But he actually made a profit in selling it to Sheikh Mansour. Made a huge profit, Sheikh Mansour. That was crazy when that came out because I was yeah. wondering, like, what's the story there? How did he? Mm. How he, did he do he has that? A, to this day, he's a Montenegro passport for business purposes, mm. I believe. Yeah. He, so, yeah, Maris, do you want to say why? Why did he end up having to sell? I mean, I get like. It, it's a mix it missed a backstrop of unbelievable political term like when you say Aus what you mean by Aus is that like tanks roll into the main square and yeah. he, like he was a military coup which so his sister eventually was also elected prime minister and in very very similar circumstances was also Aus again because of fears of what was going on but also, like you've got this I think uh, from day one like there was there was certainly a raised eyebrows at the fact that he was even allowed to purchase the club so there was certainly this kind of swirling context of uh like he has famously talked about spending four million a week because no, not realizing it because of wages and transfer demands and things like this, or transfer fees that had prolonged payouts. But he things that he was totally unaware that he was going to end up paying. Like he was, so he was hammering money, had spent this money. It was also a kind of lingering saying over where this money was coming from in the mm-hmm. first place. And you got this kind of swirling context of this man shouldn't have been awarded or shouldn't have been granted the ability to purchase now. You could argue that it actually had beneficial knock-on effects for City anyway. But the, the mere fact of his own past kind of, it definitely lingered. And it goes back to this idea, like you've mentioned the Daily Mail article and we've kind of talked about the going down. Like, uh, much of this would remind you of a League of Ireland club. Like the 
Yeah. Like going on. But the kind of point in fact is that there was no real concern, whether that be from you know fans or even certain players. There was no real concern about this man until they started losing, and then he started trying to interfere. And he did, but like that, he didn't interfere while it was going badly. He interfered already, and still there was no massive, you know, pushback. There was still a massive honeymoon period, despite the fact that he, like mm. we mentioned, those three players that he brought in who didn't even play. But again, it was this massive PR exercise like that. That sense carried over the whole way through yeah I think uh, I think fans are a bit more uh, aware these days of, of uh, dodgy owners because it's happened so often lately I think everyone has learned the lessons but at the same time you have like re- recently Aston Villa were bought up and you know there were people who were who were worried about who was coming in because they'd been burned before uh, but you also had people arguing well our club is going to go extinct yeah. if we don't find someone to buy this club. So it doesn't matter who they are. If they've got the money, let them in. I would still maintain that that, that that might not be... like I don't know if our... Is, does football still have as big a social consciousness as, as even as it may have mm-hmm. done? Like the... If we look at Man City right now and there's questionable human rights acts that are flagrantly being violated and very little done about it because yeah. of how successful they are. So I, like, yeah. I, I think like... What like... All the problem I suppose you get is that like, you know like you get expertly well produced documentaries about this Man City team that makes you believe that they only started playing football in 2009 and didn't exist beforehand yeah. whereas in fact there was this kind of convoluted history which is very very entertaining but still the same sense that just how quest, how seriously are we scrutinising owners and, and that's not limited to this club by any stretch of imagination yeah I, I, I suppose the, the point I was getting to is that you know you have situations like that where uh, there's a desperation because yeah. the club is on the brink uh, with Man City at the time it was just we're mediocre we're like bang <laughs> middle we just want something we just want a little bit of hope like that we can like kind of break that glass yeah. ceiling uh, which is really dangerous because like like City were safe like your your club is safe and they bring in this guy like you said who has questions over you know he had a war on drugs that has allegedly led to the deaths of over 2,000 people yeah you know this guy has this quite huge questions over how he got his money and yet we're like oh we'll take you thank you very much like that is a measure like that's a flaw of human condition like you when like you mentioned that idea of like they were like their eyes were on especially like you're not talking about the eyes on the oppressions you're talking about your eyes like across the Eastlands and you're looking at United and this all-conquering Alex Ferguson team mm-hmm. and you're like you're lingering for that and ultimately you're kind of you're prepared to be flexible with your values in order to try and achieve that like that that's not unique yeah. to that's not unique to football that's that's a, yeah. a major flaw with the human condition uh, even just I know like they, there are some bigger questions that we've kind of brought up there bigger societal issues and you know we're talking about human rights abuses with not just Shinawatra but the current uh, owners of Man City but what about also like the identity of the club because even if we see the transformation it's gone to from from changing stadium from main road to the city of Manchester stadium uh, which totally different atmosphere like main road was like their spiritual home as well as being their home and now they've gone several steps further which is totally changing the the club and who runs it and who works there and the players like you said they had a great academy system now they don't have any academy players almost coming through you know only maybe one every couple of years yeah but like as we said compared to before they had Sturridge Ben Mee Kieran Trippier Joe Hart Stephen Ireland Willow Flood all these all these guys came straight into the front team into the first team the identity of that club is just totally different now. Is that also like concerning? I mean, I, like I think 
in a situation like that, you bow down to what former players say. And like R- Richard Dunn spoke very well about this in an interview with the Forty Two, and he was, might have been two years ago, or maybe maybe it was more recently. But basically, he was talking about the idea that he was invited back to a club that he no longer recognised. Like he he went mm-hmm. to the Elliot Complex and there was seventeen pitches, and but when he was there, everyone was on top of each other, and because of that, everyone knew each other, and there was kind of this like fostered unity there, and that's totally gone. Like that sense of community between academic and he, like he. At the end of it, there was kind of this kind of sad moment where he spoke about his son Theo, who was and when he was asked like, "So now that you know what the way it was versus the way it, what it has been, or the way it is versus the way it was, would you encourage him to go into football?" And he said, "I wouldn't push him at all." Like he kind of was made a reservation about the industry he was going into versus the industry that gave Richard done so much and continues to like he still works in the yeah. media. Did this season, uh, Shinawatra's kind of er- very short era, did that pave the way? for their current success yeah possibly I don't know if Sheikh Mansour would have bought the club had they not had such a lively season beforehand you know I'd be very interested to see if City was offered to to the Sheikh a year beforehand when Stuart Pearce was still in charge would he have left it off but then again they had a brilliant stadium which they had only moved into a few years beforehand and they had the makings of a potentially very good team but I think I, I, I would speculate that it had a massive help. And Shinawatra was probably desperate to sell, which helped as well. And they, he was probably uh, very attracted to the idea of it. Uh, but I mean, like, if Sheikh Mansour was hearing some of the stories that were coming out, like, he, he must have been entertained by the idea. Like, Valerie Bajnaf, I forgot to mention, <laughs> they, they didn't take the pre-season tour at all seriously, so much so that Bajnaf was caught eating KFC on the bench <laughs> during one of the matches in the pre-season. And um, <laughs> there was one of the board members in the cinematic called uh, Sassin Manvoisen. And she asked um, when she saw the players warm down after a game against Liverpool, she turned around hopefully to one of the board members there beforehand and said, um, oh, are they playing another match now? <laughs> said, no, that's the warm down. And she uh, insisted on this Saudi Arabian uh, guy coming over to have a trial for the club and she was there bellowing praise for him on the sidelines in training telling Torgrip look at his skills look at his skills and uh, needless to say he was shipped out of the club a couple of days later <laughs> so there's some incredible stories that I'm sure caught the imagination of Mansour but fundamentally it was obviously a business deal and there was something mm-hmm. more than the fun and games of Shinoatra but I think it could, it could have put them on the map yeah well I think it was one of Shinawatra's advisors who basically was the go-between he led them together and so I don't think that, that ever happens if it's John Wardle he was still in charge no, of the there, there he has wouldn't to be, have that connection there has to be that link yeah there has to be the link that David Moyes wished he had between Everton and United before he got the United job there has to be something there like to, to connect the others it has to be a matchmaker basically you know United had been bought by the Glaciers a few years previously but this kind of break the dam in terms of the influx of foreign money into the Premier League because you see Hicks and Gillette kind of follow suit yeah I mean the um, more in yeah. Liverpool and just in terms of like not just the big clubs but then you see every club now every club is pretty much owned by a foreign owner yeah I suppose Bramovich had a monopoly on it from when he took over Chelsea 2003 mm-hmm. And then I think the first time he was outbid for a player was when City signed Robinho for thirty-two million, and so that was the first time that someone else had come in with, with more money than him. And I suppose that yeah, then it started the cycle. And I suppose prospective owners saw these big clubs being bought by businessmen and thought that they'd have a piece of it too. But I suppose 
I wouldn't say that this fundamentally changed it. It just was part of the evolution. And this is probably the biggest example of it. But there needed it to be widespread, you know, as... And that's why now it's so hard to, to find a club that was owned previous to the Abramovich era, mm. in that sense. I, I think purely just the uh, the fact that he flipped it for such a massive profit, I think that did have a big influence. Because I think people saw, mm, you put you put X amount of money in, you'll get X amount, of, Y amount of money yeah. back. And I think that's, that's especially what's interacted of American investors, because they don't mind making a loss in order to pump up the value and then eventually make their profit later oh, yeah. down the line. So I think, I don't know, Maris, what do you think? Do you well, think it had that big of influence I, or was it just, it was going that way anyway? I, I guess there was two kind of like, there was two separate strands. Like the, the big point that you were, I think we've made as well already is that like the city money was welcomed, like by, especially by our fan base, whereas the Glazers absolutely wasn't. Like there was, the, the protests were almost instantaneous. You saw like the, this Love United hate Glazers, that, that, the origins of that were like early days as that merger was being announced and you saw it like JP was willing to sell his share and they kind of knock on effect that the, that would have for that club and I think the biggest kind of point to that was that United fans very very quickly realised that this wasn't a lot of these money wasn't going to be reinvested that there was a maybe like I guess it goes back to what we were talking about earlier actually like the reason that United fans were so frustrated was because they could see that this was a, a motivation that might actually ha- hurt the club whereas if it's for hypothetically PR circumstances that you're buying a club and you're trying to land your image that's not going to hurt the club in terms of performance and like if that's your bottom dollar you're willing to maybe be flexible with other aspects like, so like mm-hmm. the I, I think they're actually two separate strands if you know what I mean like, I, I think it definitely broke down the dam and like as I said like his his own allies came in very very quickly afterwards to Leicester City who still remain who still do trips to Thailand actually um, Birmingham you saw what happened there as well all of a sudden there was this like massive influx of money and I think the biggest idea is what uh, Cullum touched on there like where you've got a middleman like all of a sudden you've got a merger and people introduce you into this whole new world of ridiculous finance that was only going to get bigger and you saw like exponential growth in television industries and this gate revenue and which uh, to the extent where now gate isn't even a massive priority anymore you've got the prioritization of what as other you know source of revenue do you have anything to add to that i just think it's uh it's so much more attractive to buy a club on the up than to buy a club that's already there that's a great point yeah and uh with the glazers like they were on to a high into nothing like because why why do you do with united that's going to make it better because they're one of the biggest businesses in the world that alone football teams so Man City was a great club to buy in that sense. Of course, hindsight makes it look fantastic because of the success they've had since. So that like the owners had to do a lot of work to it. Like mm-hmm. as much as the human rights issue uh, legitimately comes into play, they by all accounts run the club brilliantly yeah. in all aspects. Uh, I just want to know: Do, do either you have like a favorite story out of this Shinawatra era? There was definitely one. I, d- I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but there was one that apparently he buried two pot elephants and some crystals beneath the Manchester Stadium. <laughs> pitch which just kind of shows the bonkers nature of them but do you have any any kind of geez i think i've i've uh i said them all now the bajanov kfc one's great that's a great i, one. I will just add slightly on maris's one uh, earlier i don't know if it's taken maris's one now but yeah casper schmeichel's trip to thailand oh, where, i haven't known that justice at all where he made <laughs> uh he made uh casper Schmeichel go on this trip casper Schmeichel is this young goalkeeper who was he was a reserve keeper and schmeichel says that uh he just watched Sinatra do karaoke in the bar <laughs> and he had he karaoke or Sinatra brought backup singers to help improve his voice and uh, yeah it just reminds me of a scene from um, Jackie Brown Tarantino movie 
so of uh, De Niro just watching this woman <laughs> sing very unimpressed and uh, that's probably my favourite uh, imagery of this a young Casper Schmeichel looking on being like why am I here <laughs> what has this got to do with anything that's probably it Maris do you have anything to add oh, I'm not going to top that <laughs> no Grant yeah no I think if anyone wants to to read all about that it's uh, you can just google it Daily Mail yeah Tax and Sinawatra Man City uh, it's the definitive piece on it and there's so many great things in it just yeah. just a brilliant article and we'll take a break and then we'll come back with some uh, more shy talk Johnson City expectations growing here shot is in City take the lead a bit of Brazilian magic against the runner play you have to say but Giovanni who's placed in the starting lineup wasn't even guaranteed has given City an amazing lead 31 minutes on the clock space for only the second time in the game Johnson couldn't find the target with the first effort but just a minute or two later a wonderful shot from Giovanni took a slight deflection did it off finish it was enough to swerve it into the net Van der helpless and City lead in the big derby the minus touch for Sven it's happening again and uh, we're back you can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes by the way rate, us review, rate and review us while you're there and make sure to follow us on Twitter at Nostalgia Ultra 5 and like us on Facebook now lads last week we talked about Declan Rice and the whole situation there uh, since then Harry Arder has dropped out of the squad and <coughs> I also read about a French under 21 player who dropped out of the squad because he was tired it used to be the way that if you didn't want to play international football, you had an injury or, you know, something else. You know, you had to go to an important family gathering or something like that. It it feels like players aren't even trying to come up with excuses now. So my question is, is there a kind of an apathy towards international football now that wasn't there before? Or has it always been there? Is it gr- like, what's the what's the crack here, do you think? I don't, I don't know. Part of the reason that I enjoyed the World Cup so much was to see that, like, in this, which is, very, I suppose, kind of meaningful on this podcast, like, in this, like, increasingly commercialising football as a business world, that, that it evidently still mattered to a lot of players. Like, to play for your country was still carried meaning. But ultimately, like, there's this, like, like there's this kind of general team that a lot of the football is a shit. Like, there's the thing, there's a international football doesn't really demand much of you you saw especially for like this was a we spoke about Alex Ferguson earlier this was a major bugbear of his that if, if there wasn't you know massive meaning in it he didn't want his players involved to the extent where like Ryan Giggs like for a man who represented Wales for as long as he did as for very few caps because yeah. he was hardly ever played like yeah. he continued to pull out of squads and I guess it's that idea that like if this is a if this is a profession and this is a career, how much weight do you attach to something that outside of a World Cup when it does carry m- massive meaning? It doesn't ter- sheer in terms of like as an accolade and as an event away from that. Like what, like what does this really mean? You know, like you, you boil down to this. Like I wonder is a lot of international football kind of this existential crisis where we're like, what like what is the where does this ultimately go? Yeah, yeah. I w- I wonder if. Like, like in the example of the, I can't remember his name now, but I just remember I read it during the week that this this French player, I think his name is Augustine, pulled out of the squad because he's tired. And I just wonder if players like him are just going, do you know what? Like, I've I'm playing club football. I've this is like a full time job. I'm working on this so hard all the time. Do you know? I and I'm not really. I know, I'm I'm just. Uh, this is just hypothetical now. I have no idea what his actual opinions are on this, but maybe he's just thinking. 
you know, I, I actually just don't need to meet up with this international team. Like, I'm not getting what I want or what I need out of it. I don't know. Like, is there is? Do you think there? Like, eventually, we're gonna have a situation where, like, really, half the players won't, in fact, answer call ups and will end up with like Denmark amateur international teams. Well, that's over commercial rights. Yeah, but that that would probably be the increasing likelihood that it'll be commercial rights that'll be the reason people won't play. The fatigue thing is, uh, I'd say a lot of players do it without us knowing it, and it's down to injury. David Bentley famous famously did it. He pulled out of the. England under 21 Euros in 2007 and he, he straight up told Stuart Pearce the then manager that he was just too tired after the season and then when he made his senior debut against Israel at Wembley he got booed when he came on and it was Bentley's dream for, since he watched Gaza at Italian 90 to play for England and he said it was the most underwhelming experience of his life and he said why am I getting booed I was honest I just told you I was really tired I couldn't play properly for you so you'd be better off giving the position to someone else so I suppose you're, you're done for your honesty if you say you're too tired but if you don't care, that's the other thing. I think that players care when it's on a big platform. Uh, if it's a major tournament and you're seen. I was saying there earlier, I wrote about that during the summer and that it, basically the World Cup is uh, an anomaly that like everybody wants to be in the World Cup because it's the greatest shot window. Mm-hmm. That's the cynical point of view. The positive spin on that is that like it's still probably the most pure form of football is the World Cup uh, because it, there's always a a narrative and a team to every World Cup really I think the friendlies are really going to suffer yeah, going forward and even the Nations League but we don't know how that's going to go well this is I mean the Nations League is actually meant to be competitive football yeah, but that's and I mean. still we're having the situation yeah. where players feel well I can miss these but that's what I mean friendlies are already kind of seen as hassle then it's going to come to the next phase it'll be the qualification for major tournaments and then it will really just be a case of the only group of players that this is attractive to at all is players who want to break into the team yeah. at all. <clears throat> so established players won't want to play as much. Now, that's in theory, you'd ask, uh, you do a sample of a lot of professional players who have countless caps for their country, and they're all going to publicly tell you that, of course, it's the biggest honour to play for your country. The really fascinating part of this discussion is what they actually think privately. And I'd say you'd be getting a mixed response. Yeah. Probably 60 40 in favour of playing. I, I just think of players like, if you look at like, Players like uh, James McCarthy and Aidan McGeady, who are both Scottish, and uh, there are times in their careers where it would, where especially for McCarthy, I think it would have been a lot easier for him to not play for Ireland, to almost like just like I'm staying at home, I don't need this, because he got a lot of criticism because people thought that he like he didn't care or whatever, but like why would he keep showing up? And I think I think we kind of uh, project a lot. I think this this week we've seen a lot of people projecting <laughs> what they yeah. feel about players. That's, that's, yeah, go on, I, I guess like that's the. Crooks win international football, and like the McCarthy is the ultimate example of that. Like the McCarthy's major major downfall was that before he kicked the ball for Ireland, we had him shoehorned as Roy Keane's replacements. And yeah, no matter the fact, despite like any evidence that he wasn't that kind of player, he didn't play in that kind of role, and he wasn't that kind of personality, we still were convinced that James McCarthy was gonna gonna be like fill that messiah need that we kind of had, and that's uh like we would all love. I'm sure Irish like any Irish fan would love that people who went out to represent us was like you know like chest thumping like die hard proud to be Irish but ultimately that's not going to be the case you just have to accept reality with that I just uh, I just wanted to bring up something that you brought up last week uh, Colin which was we were talking about the Ireland-Netherlands game in 2001 and you are saying how slow it was and you kind of mentioned that the standard is so much better today so do you, I just want to know like do, is the standard actually better or is it just quicker no, it's quicker, but everyone's technically better now. Yeah, that's really? the standard in football. But international football, 
like it's as good as it can be like think about it they only play together they're part it's a part-time thing like they they have no time to actually play as a cohesive team because they only gathered well, how many games are there on average a year mm-hmm. definitely less than the month in a the year they have shag all time together like so what you're doing is what you're gathered for a few days at a time so you're just trying to get a team together that's going to win yeah. so style is a bonus after that so you're not going to get the best football And but X-Pro seem to say that it's the toughest standard to play in so I don't know how that works yeah, but go on, go back. Like it, you have to be so clever PR wise in terms of how you're perceived in the international scene. Paul Scholes retired from England at 29, and English fans love him uh, because he was seen as hard done by because he was played out of position. Uh, I know he said the the reason was to prolong his club career. Lowest players give that reason, like so. It depends how you go about it. Archer's going to have that over his shoulder now for the whole thing because yeah, yeah. he said he, he there's an argument that he doesn't want to play. It's it's so you have to be so uh, smart, or your people have to be smart in how. They word it. Mm-hmm. Um, you're better off saying you're injured, and then if you don't want to play ever, you're better off saying that, uh, "Oh, I'm not being played in my right position" or something like that. Yeah, yeah, you know. I just want to get your opinion, on that, uh, Maris, because I think you you kind of agree with uh, Column there on in terms of the ability of of players now. Like, I think for sure players now are quicker and they're fitter, but I don't necessarily think that means they're better technical ability because I think there's a lot of players who get away because they can sprint 100 metres in 12 seconds oh well that's certainly true uh, like if you look at someone like Theo Walcott who was meant to replace Thierry Henry who was probably much fitter than Thierry Henry even was at his peak but has nowhere near the technical ability but I still yeah I I guess on that like I still think ultimately they'll be found out. Like, there's a reason Walcott was ev- eventually sold from of Arsenal, course. and there's also a reason, like, to put this in an Irish perspective, like, and this is like kind of to tie this all together. Like, a player like James McLean, who was 100% committed no matter what when he's playing, but ultimately is limited technically, and he, he was found like that was he was found one thing in certain aspects when he was in the Premier League. Whereas if you watch him with Stoke, I watched him in the League Cup last week, and it was perfect for him because he got that 50 yards of space in front of him channel where he could boot the ball in front of him and sprint out afterwards without anybody impeding him, yeah. like the kick on the outside. Like that way, it was perfect from in that kind of circumstance. Um, when he was playing with Stoke in the at a championship level, like in the like when he was at Sunderland, it was the exact same tactic. This is in his number one trick all the way through, yeah, yeah. like to kind of compensate for maybe a lack of ability to run with the ball. Like that's, I I still I I understand what you're saying and that those players are yeah. still there, but I do think they're found out when they get to a certain level. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we talk about players from like the, the you know, played in the 90s and played in the noughties and now, you look at now and the standard is completely yeah. different. But then you have someone like Ryan Giggs who started his senior career in like 92 and went up until only three or four years ago. And, and, and like his, his, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like his, his technical ability was hardly any different from, you know, 20 years ago to just a few years ago. I think so, he's prolonged his career was, by, Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. I'm just saying it's just one of those things where it's like, well, uh, you know, he was able to last at the top of the game up until very late on. So how his standards can't have changed that much. He still had the same technical ability. Yeah, like you, technically, maybe yeah. Like physically, he kind of he kind of adapted to. Like I think he kind of played through. What part of the reason that he kind of sustained, whereas others may have didn't, is because he adapted to the way the game went. Like, mm-hmm. especially with United. Like, he played he played in United teams that were very, very hard-hitting on the counter, and he was up wide and major part of that. And then he also was played at this, like, kind of dominant 1-0 United who were all about control, and he'd slot in in the middle, and he'd yeah. play in front of a defensive player, oftentimes Carrick, and it worked from that way. Like, he, he adapted to the way their game went, and thus he was able to prolong his career at United. But I don't, like, I don't know was 
I would still maintain that I think in the reason United changed and the reason Alex Ferguson changed is because he recognised tec- the technical ability in Europe was rising and he wanted to win in mm-hmm. Europe. So that's why he introduced this slightly more conservative but a lot more controlling and a lot more like organised United that we saw when kind of gigs started inside and centre. Just before we get to uh, our nostalgia hit of the week, um, just on the Man City theme, it came out today, Berbatov said, he talked about his signing for Manchester United and... He said uh, the night before City signed Rubinho from Madrid, his agent came up to him and said, there's another team in for you, Berba. Have you read this today? Did you see his response? Fuck off, we're going to Manchester United. Which was famously a chance, but the uh, start for end, I think, isn't it? Oh, I'm going to butcher this now. I think it's like, Berba, tough, tough, tough. He told City to fuck off. <laughs> kept, like, kept going. Like, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, lads, do you have a nostalgia here for the week? Well, I noticed there that you have uh, Brian Cranston's book, A Life in Parts. Oh, yeah. And I read that at the start of last year. It just reminds me of reading that in my old apartment. Very good book. Have you read I it? No, I haven't read it yet. It's excellent. You asked me actually last week how many... Well, I think you were saying in the whole room how many I've ever read. Uh, but I actually counted up today. I've read 32 of those uh, 90 books. Very good. So I'm happy enough with myself. You That's my just... most modern ever nostalgia hit. Because that's twenty seventeen. Uh, first half twenty seventeen. Well, you could just uh, go back to like Malcolm in the Middle mm. when he was. More, did you not like it? No, I loved it. Oh, okay. yeah. He goes into it. Mars, yeah. Mars, do you have one? Yeah, just touching off that idea of kind of what you were talking about last week, actually, and on the United City kind of rivalry, I was just thinking about that game when Giovanni scored, and then when United, in very similar circumstances scored to make it 3-2 through Michael Owen which I think was one of the most surreal experiences ever to see that in a in a derby so I kind of was reminiscing about that coming in here today yeah. uh, mine is I found this really random uh, copy of Esquire 1969 July and it has on the front this is actually pre um, landing on the moon so it's actually literally asking what words should the first man on the moon utter that will ring through the ages and has all these famous quotes. And he's like, eh, well, uh, let's see now. But uh, the reason why I brought this up is because I've actually seen this photo before. And I was flicking through it. And then this was marking the page. And I was like, I've seen this photo before. This is my great-great-granddad no in Esquire. Yeah. Doing a bit of carpentry. We're just looking at a man here doing some carpentry. Yeah, there's some. <laughs> yeah, literally, it's a picture of a man, like with his head sh- down. Yeah, no like, proof that it's your the photos. Uh, yeah, I'll read it to you. Right, the the wheelwright on the opposite page is James Brennan of Kilkenny, Ireland, who guesses that he is 65, but can't be sure because always having been self-employed, he has never been required to produce a birth certificate. <laughs> so, that is fantastic. There you go. Yeah. So, Where did you have that? Just lying around? That was uh, in that uh, press right behind you there. Um, I was looking through it and I found two copies of this uh, mm. random Esquire magazine. And uh, yeah, my great great granddad is in that. Yeah. So anyway, lads, thanks no for coming along. Hey, do you know what else is bollocks about international football? What? Oversaturated. We have too much football. Get rid of some football. Yeah. Get rid of some football. Get rid of some football. Every three days. Are you going to do mental. a Thanos on a get rid of half of football? There's, it's, there's too much football. There's loads you don't need, but I know. I realised at one point I stopped watching MLS because I was like, "This is." The Premier League started. It started way too soon after the World Cup. Too three weeks after, yeah. no one was ready for that. Mm-hmm. But the Community Shield was three weeks after the World Cup final.
Colin, what did you have for breakfast? Mine was Morris, by the way, but that's okay. What did I say? Colin. <laughs> Colin. No, he said Morris. Didn't no, he I? said Colin. You did a Ronaldinho pass. I thought you were looking at, <laughs> <laughs> you at him. I thought you meant me. You I can turn away. to you, John. And ask you, <laughs> Brilliant. Do you ever actually do that?